Adams, Adamly, Adamowski, Bueller, Burns, Burns, Burns. It's time for school, Rock School, with your hosts, Dr. Joe Burns. If you know Los Angeles at all, there's this area that's just packed with, like, wannabe rock bands. In fact, in fact, the supermarket that sort of feeds that whole area is called the Rock and Roll Ralph. Class is in. This is the Rock School Radio Show here on the Rock School Radio Network. My name is Joe Burns. I'm sorry Tammy is not with us today. Why? Because, once again, the Rock School Show has been lucky enough to get an interview with a great artist of a great book about rock and roll. Actually, this person is a photographer. So I finally get to talk to a rock and roll photographer and ask him some of the questions I've always wanted to know about shooting a band in concert. His name is Julian David Stone. The name of the book is No Cameras Allowed, My Life as an Outlaw Rock and Roll Photographer, 1981 to 1987. The reason for those years is because while he was late in high school and in college, he, Julian, decided to sneak a camera into a concert and he would do it by taping it to parts of his body and we'd take the camera apart in the rolls of film. This was long before digital. And what you get to see in the book are these pictures he took as, he describes himself, as a guerrilla photographer. And it's a wonderful book. The shots aren't as perfect as you see today in digital. And because of that, they just look so much more gritty and so much more real. So for an hour today, we're going to talk to Julian David Stone. Once again, the book, No Cameras Allowed, My Life as an Outlaw Rock and Roll Photographer, 1981 to 1987. And furthermore, the raw audio of the interview, because there's so much more than what I can put into the show, the raw audio of the interview is up on the website. That's southeastern.edu slash rockschool, all one word. southeastern.edu slash rockschool, all one word. For an hour today, Julian David Stone. No cameras allowed. My life as an outlaw rock and roll photographer here on Rock School. On the phone with me, Julian David Stone, the author and photographer of the new book, No Cameras Allowed. My life as an outlaw rock and roll photographer, 1981 to 1987. Julian, thanks for uh, speaking with us. My pleasure. Great to be talking with you. Hey, first of all, brilliant photographs. It's a, it's a coffee table book. I mean, there's not a tremendous amount of text inside of it, but it is just chock full and heavy with photographs. I mean, if books were sold on weight alone, you'd win. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's a, it's a big one. <laughs> I, I want to compliment you also. Uh, I said there wasn't much text in the book. But I want to compliment you on the beginning part, the epilogue, where you make the statement that when you were young, you realized that you weren't going to be a rock star, so you had to do something else. And I I want to compliment you on that because I came to that realization halfway through high school that I wasn't going to be the rhythm guitarist for Van Halen, so I went into radio. (laughs) 
<laughs> was there really an epiphany that I got to do something? I just got to be near this. You know, it, it, it was. I mean, I was just obsessed with it. I can remember, you know, m m one of my earliest memories is being in the backseat of our uh, of our station wagon and seeing Yellow Submarine, you know, on the screen at a drive in. So rock and roll has always been around me. And I was absolutely obsessed with it. And I did dream of playing it. And as the story I tell that, you know, it, it ended very quickly. I couldn't even get past, you know, fourth grade French horn. <laughs> you know, I just it, it literally was just one of these things that like and people who know me who have worked with me on other projects know how much I love music. But then when I know a lot of musician friends, when we get into the conversations about music, I can understand it intellectually, whatever that ability of the ear to hear the difference in notes. I mean, I can I can hear the difference, but I can't understand how to translate that into an instrument, you know. So, uh, yeah, I just w loved it and I just wanted to another way in and I had this budding photography you know uh, uh, infatuation at the same time and I decided to put the two together excellent that's choice how we, uh, yeah that's kind of how everything all came together now when I saw the title of the book no cameras allowed uh, without even cracking the title I was positive that it came from all of those early tickets that I bought that had stamped on them no cameras allowed, but you tell in the book that that's not the story of the title of the book. Can you tell it to us? Sure, absolutely. Um, the the although you are correct, that is kind of part of the world that you know it was on all of the tickets. It was everywhere, but the specific reference was where this all began, which is as you said, I figured out really quickly I was not going to be you know the next Eric Clapton, <laughs> and so I, I loved I loved photography and. I thought, well, God, I'll put the I'll put these two things together, and you know, I was a kind of a precocious teenager, so I headed down to see the Ramones one night with my camera bag over my shoulder. They were going to play a local club, and I show up at the club expecting to just walk in, and a guard just stops me and laughs at me and points up at a sign that says "No Cameras Allowed," and sent me on my way. And I got back to my car, and I was about to dump the camera bag, and I just kind of had this moment where I thought, you know. There's got to be a way around this. And I very quickly in the moment hid the equipment on my body. You know, this was the 1980s. So, of course, I had a lovely pair of white tube socks on, which were uh, very handy for at this point. I had very it was 35 millimeter equipment, but it was very rudimentary. And I hid, you know, the camera body on one side, the lens lens on the other went back, got right past the guard, went into the bathroom, you know, assembled everything. And then I came out as the Ramones were hitting the stage and I photographed them. And after that, I was obsessed. Uh, you know, over the next six years, I shot over 10,000 pictures of all the major acts mm. of the era, of the era. So yeah, it all started with that Ramones show and, and uh, yeah, no cameras allowed sign. patted down while you had this equipment in some way attached to your person. 
This was blatantly pre-9-11. It must have been a whole lot less cowboy back then. Oh, yeah. You know, they uh, th- they would pat you down. There were no metal detectors, or obviously I wouldn't have gotten too far. Um, but, yeah, no, they, they would pat you down, and you would just have to, you know, I would I, the next step up from the tube socks when I started to get more serious about all this was I started to tape it, you know, on parts of my body. And sometimes they'd give you kind of a super, you know, they, send it, they tended to concentrate on your upper body, your trunk. So they'd sort of pat you down up there. But I, I started using the backs of my legs. Um, uh, in all honesty, my crotch, they weren't exactly going to check you there. That was a great place for hiding for hiding rolls of film. You know, this was this was the 80s. This was not digital. So I had to carry all these little individual rolls of 35 millimeter film. So that came in very handy. And then eventually I got up to the point where I had this old Navy pea coat that hung down almost to my ankles and I modified it so that I could hide equipment in the in the hem of it. So basically the stuff, the equipment would be almost hanging down by my legs. So when they would pat me down, they wouldn't go anywhere near it. So that was kind of the, the final step was when I modified this coat and that became my, uh, my main device for getting equipment into shows. Wow, that's a weird thing to be really, really good at, Julian. <laughs> I'll tell you. Now, you know, it, it, it was kind of secondary because the main thing was to get the pictures. It was it was just like this is you know this is what I have to go through to get the photos. There was no sort of thinking about the intermediary step. That was just part of the process. I said before that your 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 photographs are are just wonderful, and it you have everything from bands I hadn't heard of through the you know the coming up coming down bands. You have Night Ranger pictures in there. I love Night Ranger. Oh, great. So the idea of the subject is obviously there. There's something to pitch. They're putting on a show. There's something to take a picture of. But you, as a photographer, you have to be at the mercy of the lighting that they bring. Can you talk about, I mean, there are there ways to trick it? Are there ways to move it? Or do you just simply shoot and hope that you got the light you need? Well, uh, you know, that that was a big part of it. And obviously, you know, I, I was using I started with a Canon AE1 and moved up to a Canon A1, which were which were very good cameras for the time. And they had light meters that sort of gave you some guidance of what you were doing. You also learned certain tricks. One of the things that I did was there was this thing I learned early on of sort of fooling the light meter to think that the film was a faster speed, meaning more sensitive, so I could use faster shutter speeds. Because when you were, even though there was a light meter, you were primarily, particularly in this day and age, you were shooting a bright object, a wash in a field of black. And the light meters had a tendency to, to try to balance the two, meaning that it would try to almost bring up the background instead of letting it go completely black. And you would you would end up with an effect where the figure the figure you were shooting would be overexposed. So by tricking it to think that the film was faster, I would end up getting a better exposure that might have gotten a little technical. Sorry about that. but. <laughs> That's all right. You know, that that's kind of one of the the techniques I learned. And then you also as you the more you did it, you started to be able to trust your instincts like you knew what shutter speed you could still get away with a with a good image, like a 30th of a 60th. I tried to always shoot at least 125th of a second. Otherwise, I was worried that'd be a little blurry. But sometimes you also learned that the slower shutter speeds would sometimes give you 
an interesting picture where blur would be part of it. Um, one of the pictures that, and bands that I almost never talk about in the book when I do interviews, but it fits in here talking about photography is I have a great picture of a band called Eddie and the tide. And I write about them that Eddie and the tide was the, everybody who was into music had a band like this in their town where like you were sure they were going places like you were going to be able to say, I remember seeing Eddie in the tide when, you know, they played my neighbor's bar mitzvah or something like that. <laughs> and they were going to be big stars. And I have this great picture of them where part of the, the beauty of the picture is that the, the lead guy, Eddie is like blurry. He's sort of in motion, sort of a great rock and roll move with his guitar. And that's a product of using a slower shutter speed. And as I also go on to say, unfortunately, Eddie in the tide never quite, became the the big hits that all of us in the bay area thought they would but from the photographic standpoint that's an example of using a, a slower shutter speed and getting an interesting photo where most of the time i was pretty obsessed with making sure that it was a fast enough shutter speed so i wouldn't have blur or you know soft focus or concert to shoot uh, I've always wondered about this because you see people who are photographers looking through that little eyepiece and such did you try to frame your shot and anticipate or was it just the concept of blow a hundred rolls and somewhere in there will be five good pictures um, it was a little of both you know obviously you had to be pickier in this day and age because it was 36 24 to 36 pictures per roll and there was only x number of rolls i could you know cram in my crotch or other places <laughs> you know um so you had to it, it really was a combination what i generally found was when i even though i was shooting this as guerrilla not professional though i did go professional at the end which i talk about in the book but through it all particularly in the the guerrilla phase of it or the outlaw phase I would sort of almost I would shoot a certain number of roles where I felt like, OK, I've covered the artist. Then I would start to play around. I'd start look for, you know, as, as you're watching the show, you start to identify interesting things like, oh, he's going to go over a certain number of times. You know, the one guitarist is going to get together with another guitarist and sort of, you know, get into an interesting formation. So you look for that thing to repeat itself and, and capture it, you know, as, as you as you learn the show, as you're watching it, that kind of stuff would definitely figure in where I would start looking for them to repeat a moment and try to get that moment. Mm -hmm. Now, did you develop your own film or did you go to like a photo hut and drop it off? <laughs> a little of both. I did my own black and white for the most part. I had the dark room in, you know, in, uh, in, uh, at home, it was in my, in my bathroom and at school. I, when I eventually went off to college, sort of in the middle of this or towards the end of it, I used the dark room there. The color, uh, I'd say 95% of it I sent out. There was briefly an attempt to develop my own color negative, which for anybody who's, you know, who does photography, it takes three chemicals to do your own black and white which is not that big a deal to do your own color negative it was like 11 different jars of chemicals and i just remember having all these different size you know mason jars and stuff i had collected <laughs> around the house and i went you know what 
this really isn't worth it. You know, it was more it was more just sort of the can I do this kind of thing to see because there were so many more steps involved, you know, with, with developing your own color. So, no, most of the color stuff was sent out. And I shot I shot about mostly color negative, but I did shoot some color slide. Man, you're lucky you didn't blow yourself up. <laughs> yeah. Well, I remember my dad would just sort of roll his eyes when he would see me, you know, grabbing all these mason jars and be like, what are you up to? You know, and I'm in the other room with all these pretty toxic chemicals. Mm-hmm. So. We need to take our first break here on the Rock School Radio Show, allow the affiliates to do business with their listeners. Julian David Stone is who we're speaking to, all about his book, No Cameras Allowed, My Life as an Outlaw Rock and Roll Photographer, back in a minute here on Rock School. Hey, Rock School listener, you hear this little thing going on right now, this this music bed that goes on for a minute, we do it twice during the show? This is where a sponsor should be. This is where an underwriter should be. If you or some business you know might want to be that sponsor or underwriter of the Rock School radio show, please have that person give us a call, 985-549-2330. Once again, 985-549-2330. You can sponsor the radio show, you can sponsor the podcast, you can sponsor both as other ways of doing it so call that number 985-549-2330 and talk with rachel or talk to todd if you really want to talk to todd for some reason but rachel's really who you want to speak to 549-2330 thanks Now, you, you've mentioned number of roles, and congratulations, you're the first person to ever say the phrase, cram in my crotch, on this radio show. How many roles, how many roles would you try to get in? It, it depended on the show. You know, one of the big shows that I have in my book are the Police at Shea Stadium. And I knew going in that this was a huge concert, so I took about 20 roles with me. Like, that was a time where, you know, I... I every every nook and cranny i could come up with uh i was i was hiding rolls of film on me and that was a big one typically it was probably around five or six if i was shooting you know eddie and the tide at a club or icicle works or something like that where i knew i wasn't going to be you know such a hectic pace and i i and i i would that that would be enough to cover a show like that i know that today a whole lot of performers will allow a press pass for say the first one two three maybe four songs and then ask you to stop and what they'll do is they'll pose for the photographers down in the pit i know kiss does this which is why they have so many you know unrequested photos was that ever back then or was it all you know cowboy get it in and hope you don't get seen oh no there were there were professionals and i and i eventually became one of them as at the the ripe old age of about 20 uh, 2021, I had enough of a portfolio that I got hired by some local magazines and I started shooting shows with a pass. And I remember it like, it, you know, suddenly I was in the first of all, I could go, you know, I remember walking up to security the first time at an arena show. I think it was Howard Jones. If you remember old Howard Jones, uh, he was playing an arena and I and I walked up with a bag over my shoulder, sort of, expe- you know, with this guard staring at me and then flashed in my pass. So that that experience still sticks with me the first time I didn't have to hide my equipment to get in. Um, and, yeah, I was that one of those guys in the pit and they'd give you three songs 
and then tell you to get out of there. And they didn't want you to shoot anymore. And, and I, and I didn't like it. I didn't like the vantage point of the pit as much as it was fun to be as close as possible. It's not, it's something I realized looking at the pictures years later that shooting in the audience, I got a I got an unusual perspective in that this is what the audience sees. The, the pit is not the viewpoint that the crowd sees. You know, you're not looking up there, practically looking up their noses when you're in the audience. You're, you're somewhere around the arena. So my photos, my guerrilla style stuff from within the crowd really captured the show the way the artist meant it. And I did find the pit, my work in the pit was as good. It just, I don't know, it just never, it never worked for me as much as the whole outlaw aspect of it. When I think back on all the crap I learned, It's a wonder I can think at all And my lack of education hasn't hurt me none I can read the writing on the wall thing that you say in the book that made me kind of shake my head you had this epiphany day where rolling stone the yeah. rolling Stone, and this is back when rolling stone still had nothing but street cred to burn right they contacted you and wanted to see some of your pictures and i understood completely your your thought process this is rolling it's you know god is speaking to me right but you took oh. all of these things illegally man can you <laughs> Can you sell them? I mean, what's going on? You know, there, there's, a, there's a weird thing in the law. You know, when, when all of this happened in the 80s and I hung it up in 87, which I talk about in the book, when I went to do this all these years later, 30 years later, when the whole thing came about to do this, you know, my first call was my lawyer. And, you know, I was reassured multiple times that as long as, you know, I'm selling it as my artwork, it's okay. And it kind of covers the same thing even when Rolling Stone called, was that if you're using it for a news purpose like Rolling Stone, it's legal. I can't take a picture of the police and put it on a mug and sell it. You know what I mean? It's like it, it has I can't use it as if I've licensed the material. I can use it as my own artwork, and that extends to uses in magazines. Even so that, though that, it's even though it's a picture of someone else, yeah, wow. It has to do with it. It falls into the uh, the if you think about our culture today, you know, I'm sure you, you've probably heard of TMZ. Sure, you know those guys. How would they exist? That's all they do. It, it has to do with celebrities, for whether right or wrong. It has been determined over the years that you surrender a certain amount of privacy in a public space. It's, it's it falls under the reasonable expectations of privacy. Uh, that that have to do with the, the the First Amendment. That if you achieve a certain status in society for good or bad, you surrender the right in public to the exploitation of your of your image in certain circumstances. You know, again, you can't take a picture of a celebrity and then put it as if, oh, hey, they're endorsing my product. But you can put it in an, in an, in something that's protected by the First Amendment, like a publication, and say, here they are walking down the street in Santa Monica. Oh, right. So I, that's, I get walking so. down the street and coming out of a restaurant. That that makes sense. You're in a public space, but it, the law does go into the fact that they're at a concert in a private concert hall. It still goes. Um, 
it still goes in terms of representing it as my own artwork. I can't put it, I can't license it to somebody else. Wow. I can represent it. Yeah, I can represent it as my artwork. Otherwise, if you think about it this way, even with the, you know, how would you ever be able to publish a book of rock and roll photos, even if you had an agreement and let's say they were getting a, they were getting uh, a royalty? How would you have 500 pictures in a book? It would just be even if you were getting a tenth of a penny per picture, you would never be, you know, it's it's just the way the way the law works. told two stories, one a little stronger than the other one, Joan Jett and Duran Duran. Yes. And I want you to sort of relate the idea of those stories, Joan Jett sure. one specifically, and sort of answer the question through it. I mean, at some point in time, someone had to look at you and not be happy with what you're doing. So. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, and that happened, that happened more than once. <laughs> um, I was shooting Joan Jett. This would have been 83 or 84, where she was already kind of a big star. And she was playing a small club. And it was kind of a big deal that she was shooting um, in, in this club. And, uh, you know, she she's out there rocking away, doing her thing. And I'm in the middle of this really packed crowd and I'm taking pictures. And I, you know, one of the things like I always get asked this a lot, like once you were in the show, did you feel safe? Um, I never felt safe because you knew there were always people watching you, but you felt a little safer. You know, you definitely I would keep my camera hidden, take a picture, put it back. So I'm doing my my stuff during Joan Jet, and I'm getting lots of good pictures. And all of a sudden I see this roadie come out on stage and he's looking out from the lip of the stage and he sees me and he's pointing at me and he starts jabbing his finger in the air at me like i see you and i'm kind of like well what are you gonna do i'm i'm in the crowd i'm taking pictures well i found out really quickly what he was gonna do he jumped off the stage and came tearing through the crowd at me oh, i no. mean like a bulldozer like a bulldozer he's like running moving through the crowd pushing people out of his way i see him closing in just as he gets to me i hide my camera and it, and as he's closing in in his sort of you know rush of moment he he loses me and he ends up taking down the guy next to me <laughs> so I, he takes this guy down on the ground and 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 starts you know like looking for him for a camera equipment and i just sort of ease myself away like okay nothing to see here so that that was joan jett that was definitely one of the more intense ones It's time for the second break here on Rock School. We're talking with Julian David Stone, and if you'd like to hear the entire uncut interview, because there's much more than what I can use in a one-hour radio show, please go to the website, southeastern.edu slash rockschool. southeastern.edu slash rockschool. Back in a minute here on Rock School. 
Hey there, Rock School listeners. Let me give you a few nuts and bolts of the show. You want to get in touch with Tammy or me, or Todd for some reason? Go to southeastern.edu slash rockschool. Once again, southeastern.edu slash rockschool. You can get us on Facebook by searching Rock School Radio Show. You can get us on podcast over iTunes, so they send it right to your front door. Go to iTunes and search Rock School KSLU. There's other ways of getting there, but that's the easiest way. Rock School KSLU. Also, if you don't like listening to the podcast where the music is clipped, we're following BMI rules when we do that. If you'd like to hear it with all the music in place, go to the PRX network, prx.org. Once again, prx.org. You can't download the show, but you sure can stream it, and all the music is in place. Thanks for listening. You mentioned Duran Duran. Um, I went to see Duran Duran. This was in uh, early 84, kind of at you know, the peak of Duran Duran craziness, just screaming girls and just absolute insanity. And in all honesty, I was not the hugest fan of them, but I went to school. In fact, it was the same guy whose brother had the had the band Haven. He was obsessed with Duran Duran. <laughs> so he's and he knew I photographed concerts. I'd taken pictures of his for him of his brother. And he said, Would you go to Duran Duran and take pictures for me? I'll pay for your ticket. We'll go down together. I'll drive, you know, I'll take care of everything. I said, Well, what do I got to lose? Of course, that sounds great. So we, we go down to, this is in Los Angeles, we, we go down to the Los Angeles Forum, and it's pandemonium, it's completely sold out, you know, it's just absolute the Duran Duran at their peak. Well, we can't find a ticket, but we find an usher who was working one of the doors at the Forum, who says, hey, if you give me 50 bucks, I'll let you guys into the show. We give them the 50 bucks, we go into the show, well, we don't have seats. So we're just kind of milling around up on the upper mezzanine. And the idea is that when the lights go out, I'll take some pictures and then we'll move down closer and I'll get even better pictures. So the lights go down. If it's possible, the screaming gets louder, which you wouldn't have thought was possible, but it did. Duran Duran comes out, pandemonium. I pull up my camera. I'm taking pictures. And, you know, I, I shoot a roll or two from up there. They're not the best because I'm far away, but they're fine. And at, at this point, I had already started this thing where as I would finish a roll of film, I would hide it in my shoe. It was just sort of my process. So I knew which was shot, you know, from where I'd hidden it and, and, and which was a fresh roll. So I'm, I've already got a roll or two hidden and I'm taking the pictures up there and I'm getting ready to, to move closer. And all of a sudden I feel this hand on my back. And I turn around and there's two huge security guards standing there. And they look at me and go, Duran Duran, group security, can you please come with me? So they start to haul me away. My friend disappears like out of a cartoon, just a puff of smoke, and he's gone. He takes off. They take me outside of the arena because if you know the L.A. Forum, it, I'll, briefly, it just it doesn't the, the outer concourse doesn't go all the way around. You have to leave the venue for, for part of that. So they take me outside. They take all my film away. They don't get the rolls that I've hidden in my shoe. They get all my uh, blank rolls of film. They, they rip the film out of my camera and everything. Then they give me back my camera. And now, now you know, they figure they've neutralized the threat. And they they kind of loosen up. They're, they're kind of nice guys about it. Now they realize I'm, I'm just a kid. And they decide they're going to let me back into the show. So they take me up to a door to let me back in. They knock on the door. The door opens. It's the same usher that we paid to get into the show. <laughs> now, he, he, he sees me standing there with two huge security guards, and he thinks, oh, my God, I've ratted him out to them. 
and and uh, and he starts to shut the door. He doesn't want to let us in because he thinks he's in trouble. And these two security guys are looking at each other like, what is going on here? You know, why is this guy not letting us back in? I, of course, figure out the whole thing. And I just sit there sort of keeping my mouth shut. So finally, this guy will not let us back in, slams the door shut. So the two security guards start having a conversation about what are they going to do with me? Well, one of them comes up with the idea of, hey, let's take him back into the show through the backstage area. So I'm listening to this and going, hey, that sounds like a great idea. Right. So they start so they start to march me towards the backstage area and we're we're walking along and I'm getting excited. I'm having all these visions of, of what I'm gonna see and everything, and we're closing in on the backstage door and they get another call for another security incident. So they end up just dropping me, leaving me right there in the parking lot. They take off to deal with their security incident almost as quickly as my friend had disappeared, he reappears. Um, he had gotten so scared, even though they hadn't taken him away, he had left the show and then he had seen me marching off with them towards the backstage area. And he thought that they were taking me away to jail. Oh, so he, yeah. Yeah. So he comes up to me and he's like so relieved to see that I'm OK. And I've, of course, just been entertained by the whole thing. So basically, at that point, we our Duran Duran experience was over. We were out of the show. So we got in my car and uh, just headed home. So that that was Duran Duran. And there there is one pretty cool picture that I have to say that did survive the whole thing that is in the book, along with the sort of the whole story written out in, in even more detail. band any artist you missed that you'd still like to get oh god there, there's so many from the time that even concerts i even saw at the time like i was shooting so many shows but i, I kept lists of everybody I saw and there's sometimes there'll be a band like the pretenders or somebody like that it'll be like i went to that show why didn't i take pictures like i maybe i was on a date you know it's all kind of lost to memory so i have a little bit of that of regret when i see shows i went to that i didn't take pictures in terms of people i would have loved to have shot um there there are some that i missed then and then there's some that go back like you know i would have given anything to have shot elvis at any time period mm -hmm. you know that, that that's a big bucket list wish you know that i i had shot elvis um uh, obviously, you know, a dream would have been to have shot the Beatles too. You know, I'm sort of low, low hanging fruit, but nonetheless, the the truth. In terms of bands at the time, mostly, like I said, it's the ones that I saw that I don't know why I didn't photograph. You know, I, I would have liked to have shot like Pink Floyd doing the Wall. That would have been a great one to, you know, the, the original Wall concerts in 1980 or 81. That's another one I wish I, I'd had a chance to photograph.
Well, let me ask you kind of an ethereal question. I, I lecture to my students on magazines, and the thing that I pitch about magazines is the fact that it really was the first delivery system of pictures. And since there wasn't such a proliferation of them, pictures had the ability to literally alter society and change people. Now everyone can take a picture. Do you, do you believe that pictures have kind of lost their guts or can still a single well-done picture change things? Oh, I, I think it's just as powerful. I, I, I understand what you're saying where I, I think it's more it's more symptomatic that even if a picture is, is powerful, there's so many images and so much bombardment of media that it doesn't last as long because we're on to the next great picture. Because I still think, I mean, not, not to get into politics, but some of the image of the, the stuff going on at the border, some of these po photos had tremendous impact that I still think a photo can carry the same punch I just think it doesn't land as much because the next picture comes so much quicker where you're right. If it was a magazine and a powerful image in time or Rolling Stone or something that would land for two weeks before something else would, 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 you know, take its place. So I, I think it's more that I think they're ultimately just as powerful. It's just that the proliferation means that they don't last as long. Julian David Stone. The book is No Cameras Allowed, My Life as an Outlaw Rock and Roll Photographer, 1981 to 1987. It's a, it's a masterpiece, Julian. There's no question. It's wonderful. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much. I'm, it's really been exciting to see the response to it. That's, that's the best part because, you know, I've, I've been carrying this archive around for the last 30 years and, you know, it's, it's kind of a miracle any of it survives. So it's very gratifying uh, to, to get that kind of reaction. Thank you. So am I right in stating it's available at all fine book retailers all across the United States? You can get it at bookstores. You can get it at Amazon. Or if you want signed copies, because a lot of people have asked me, you can go to juliandavidstone.com. You can buy the book there and I'd be happy to sign it for you and send it to you. Excellent. Julian, thank you for speaking with us. Oh, my pleasure. I've enjoyed it.